Hey, how's it going guys? Filthy Quant here. I got my third guest from uh, an investment bank. He is a quantitative developer. You want to start us off by talking about what that involves, what that job is? Right. Uh, before I start, I just want to thank my, my host for today. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, never done this before, just a, a disclaimer. So, uh, so, just, so just so that you guys know. Um, right, so what does my role entail? So, I work in the electronic market making team for FXPort and okay. I work for an investment bank that's uh, part of the, the Bulge Bank, I think, as, as it's known as. Okay. Um, and what we do is we electronically market make FXPorts, precious metals, and US treasuries. Um, for those of you who do not know what market making is, it's essentially providing liquidity to the market. Um, so, for example, if you go to Tesco to buy potatoes um, and you have these different vendors that provide potatoes to you, we are one of those, those Tesco outlets, so to speak, where you can come and buy potatoes from us, but you can also buy tomatoes, you can also buy different vegetables and so on. So, um, now so bringing back to, to what I do, we provide liquidity or we provide these different currencies in, in, in the market, so different institutional investors, pension funds, hedge funds, and so on and so forth, they can come to us, they can tell us that we want to buy a certain amount of a currency, say a, a million um, euros for, for USD, and we tell them for a million euros, this is what you need to pay us. And if you buy a certain, uh, you know, so for example, if you buy two million, this is what you're gonna pay us, and so on and so forth. So this is known as market making, and we do that electronically, which means that uh, we have a, a trading platform that we run, build um that does all of that so it so goes to these different markets that are available it looks at the liquidity comes up with its own price that that we need to sort of fit out to our clients uh for different liquidity that that they want to buy from us we spit out different prices depending on on a lot of different other factors if they're a good client bad client how much they trade with us and so on and so forth and once we have once they've traded with us, we have a certain position. For example, they trade Euro USD with us, so we are uh, say for example they're long Euros, so we are short Euros and so on and so forth. Um, so once we have a certain position, we just determine whether we want to hedge it out to the market, just hold on to the risk, and and so on. Yeah. I mean, I can go more in depth, but I don't think this podcast is about that. So there's quite a lot of interesting things there. That so I see a lot of things on on TikTok about like retail traders. They're always talk about market makers. They always talk about the banks pushing down prices and pushing up prices. Yeah. So maybe we can touch on that a bit later. Yeah. But I just wanted to like dive into a bit more about what market making actually is. Cause like, sure. I remember when I was first starting out in retail, it was extremely confusing. Right. So like from my perspective, I think the easiest way, I think you described it in a really good way with the Tesco's example. Yeah. So like the way I like to think about it is very similar. It's just kind of like you have suppliers, right? And this, and you're, when you get a quote from your supplier, you get like tiered responses depending on how much you're buying. Right. That's all market exactly, making. Exactly, right? exactly. So we're just sort of, because the thing is, uh, the, the prim primary asset class we deal with is FXPort. Yeah. And as, as your probably listeners or, or, or watchers know... I'm sure there's some Forex traders out there. Yeah. <laughs> they know it's a very, very liquid market. Yeah. Which means it's, it's moving really, really fast. And every second you have different prices, new prices. And so you can only soft trade this electronically yeah. if it makes sense. We do have some voice traders, uh, but the, the business of been dwindling for them. And if anything, it's probably gonna get cut off even more. Yeah. Um. So because it's so liquid and moves so fast, 
you need to constantly do it electronically and looking at new prices, see what's the liquidity available at different venues, yeah. see what's the best price. We have something known as a primary market, fast market, and so on. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. So like, I think one of the biggest misconceptions I hear a lot on TikTok retail traders is one, they don't trade spot because you can't trade spot Forex in, in retail. Yeah. You're trading a CFD, right? Yeah. Uh, but th those CFD brokers are, are like a small portion of the total institutional volume because they're hedging out that, that, that traffic they're getting from retail, right? Okay. And they're not plugged into the interbank market. Yep. They're like, they're like a tiny little portion of volume that they get from the interbank market. Yeah. So they're like, they're not even part of the FX system. If that right. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a really common misconception among retail traders that uh, banks and market makers will move the market to stop them out of their positions. And hit right. their stop losses or whatever. Is that something you've heard before or come across before? I guess, I mean, I can only tell from the perspective of the business that I'm in, mm -hmm. FXPort, and as you said, because FXPort is mainly dealing with, with institutional clients, I definitely don't see it in, 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 in my asset class. Yeah. Uh, because we don't have as much retail uh, investors anyway. And also given how you have these market regulations now, uh, you know, you have first look and so on and so forth, it yeah. just becomes really, really tough for, for you know, people to be market manipulating it. Yeah. It, it's really easy sort of to sit and be like, you know what, maybe this bank somewhere, you know, sitting in an IVD tower is, man, you know, yeah. manufacturing prices and manipulating stuff, but it, it's not that easy. Yeah, if you think about the size of the market as well, exactly. think about the volume you would Exactly, need exactly. And we are one of that. the biggest banks in the world <laughs> and the, the percentage of, of, of market share we have is tiny. Mm. And given how fragmented the markets become, because what happened with, you know, you have Robinhood in, in, in US and you have, yeah. I don't know what's the equivalent in UK, but yeah. you have, you know, these, these new platforms that are coming up, uh, especially in emerging markets. I know a few examples in India. Yeah. It becomes so easy for people to sort of get in and trade. Yeah. The markets become really fragmented. And so you used to have these really high market barriers to get in, yeah. uh, where they would have to pay these high amounts to sort of get into and be part of the, the interbank market or not. And even though right now, if you're not a bulge mark, you can't be part of these interbank markets, but you can still get a really close liquidity and, and prices available. So it's really tough to market manipulate. Yeah. Like even if you think about it from like a business point of view, the amount of money you would need to, to source from your clients exactly. in order to push yeah. prices up yeah. or down yeah. is insane. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. And if you think about the hedging risk of actually wanting to do exactly. that as well. Exactly, yeah. And, and uh, just so the, the, the readers of know, the way we make money as, as market makers is by making money on the spread. Yeah. So uh, the, the, the clients will buy from us at a particular rate. And we usually, what the way we sort of go about it is we do something as internalization, which means we hold on to the risk. So for example, that's if you don't uh, hedge it out, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the, the, the idea is if you hedge it out, we're going to make a loss Yeah. because the price at which we are market. So th the way this works is, for example, this is the, the spread that's available. Yeah. I don't know if the, the people can sort of see, but for example, <laughs> the spreads, you know, 10 centimeter wide sure. between the buy and the, and the, and the, 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 the sell side. So the bid offer spread, uh, the bid, yeah. bid and the, and the offer. And if we were to sort of go and trade with, with these sort of margins in, in with, with our clients, they won't trade with us because, you know, you have better rates available with other clients. Yeah. So the way we work is we work within, within that, that, which means that our bids and the offers are less than what's available in the interbank market. Yeah. Um, and that's the way we are competitive and that's the way we, we make money. But now that we have traded with that, if we go out to the market and hedge at the, at the wider, the, the spread that's available in the interbank market, we are going to make a loss. Yeah. Uh, hopefully that that makes sense to to the 
the listeners. Yeah, so like, how can we describe this in terms of our Tesco's example? Yeah. So like, so like, I guess we can think of like a bit offer spread on market making. Like, again, going back to sourcing sourcing things from your supplier. If you're a Tesco's and you're sourcing your your produce or whatever from a supplier, they're going to give you a price based on how much you're buying, and that price is going to be more than what it takes for them to produce that price that product. Right? Is that, That's how they are yeah. making money. Yeah. So in this essence, their suppliers are the market makers, and they make a spread. And you guys can basically lock in that spread that's your profit. But if you go off and try and hedge it in the rest of the market, exactly, you that, make a loss. Yeah, yeah, yes. The host has explained that really well. The way this works is we internalize it and we sort of lock in that price. And if we go out and hedge immediately in the interbank market, we're gonna get uh, screwed over because you know our, our spreads are gonna be wider. We're gonna make a loss, and then it does not really make sense to be in this business. Yeah. The way this works is. For example, um, client A bought euros from us, say a million euros. Other client, you know, wants to sell euros to us, 500 million. So instead of you know, this being two different trades, we try to reconcile it. And so the net sort of becomes 500 mil up yeah. or, or long for us and so on. And so we sort of do this over the entire day. And unless we hit certain particular limits that we have that, that the, the, the bank specified that only we can hold this much risk yeah. for a particular currency. For example, we hit 500 million where no one's off going long or going short and we hit that limit. We're like, okay, fine, now we're going to hedge out yeah. and make a loss because holding on to this, this position is really, really risky for our bank. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, we are sort of always trying to hedge and, and internalize it. So trade this trade, balance it out with that trade and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. So going back to that like supplier example, it would be like, you don't want to make a loss on your sale. So yeah. like if you're selling to Tesco's and you want to collect that spread, you don't want to sell it for less than what it costs you to make it. You do have the ability to hedge that risk by going out to other suppliers in the market and buying potatoes for less money than it costs you. Yeah. If that makes sense. It, it, that's probably a bit complicated now. <laughs> yeah, it's just complicated. I'm just thinking if, if there's a whiteboard, a whiteboard. A whiteboard we can use here. <laughs> but basically, like if you're a supplier and you want to sell to Tesco's, you can either sell it at your profit margin or you can buy them from someone that's cheaper and hedge out your own risk for whatever potential market forces might affect the price of those potatoes. Yeah. But if the other people in the market are selling at a higher price than what you are selling to Tesco's, you're going to make a loss if you try and hedge it. Is that, is that probably a good way of putting it? <laughs> it's a really complicated topic, guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it, to be honest, it, it sort of sounds complicated because maybe if, if listeners are listening to the idea for the first time yeah. and unfamiliar, it sort of sounds complicated. But honestly, if you're in the business and you sort of think about it a bit more, it, it sort of makes sense. Yeah. Uh, essentially, we're trying to price within within the spread, and if you go to a market and spread at a price at a wider, we're gonna make a loss. So we try to sort of keep it in and balance it out with other trades. Just and and yeah, that that's how we make money. Yeah, yeah, it's all in spreads. Yeah. And so, kind of going back to the retail aspect of it, just just to kind of reiterate, you guys don't see any data of what retail traders are doing, right? Nope, nope. Like it's it's. I'm pretty sure it's illegal, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, so, it's impossible. I mean, we, we, we have some client information for, for, from, uh, from the different clients, but and we are doing some analysis on, on, on that and yeah. seeing what clients are doing well, what clients are not doing These well. These are institutional clients and exactly. it's, it's total net flow, right? You don't yeah. see individual positions no, no, and no, no, stock no, losses or no, whatever they're no, doing. No, 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 not at all, not at all. So <laughs> yeah. those information is completely, uh, I can't remember the word for it, but we, we, we don't really have access to any of that. And yeah. would be within... I don't think that that'll be legal to sort of look at, at individual client trades and make decisions like that. Yeah, so like the, the, the thing I hear a lot on, on social media around retail trading and the effects is that, and this happens a lot because people will put on trades with their CFD broker 
and they get stopped out all the time because when they're trading on leverage, but also because CFD brokers, again, they're trading on the spread that we spoke about, where that's how your broker makes money is they'll sell you this CFD contract that tracks the US dollar or Euro GBB or whatever it is. And they make money by charging you a slight spread on what the actual quoted market price is. Mm-hmm. When you buy it, you eat that spread. That's what your broker is making. But in CFD markets in the UK, and this is why it's banned in so many countries, CFD trading, is that you can have floating spreads. So your CFD broker will increase the spread in volatile moments, and that's what stops out a lot of these retail traders. So it's not the actual market price in real life that a lot of retail traders think it is. It's not these market makers that are trying to stop you out. It's your CFD broker because they have these floating spreads, if that makes sense. And so there's a misconception a lot on financial TikTok online that you know it's it's your market makers this evil bank in this ivory tower like yeah, you said yeah. <laughs> that are like manipulating but it's your cfd brokers yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. completely legal because it's not it's a derivative contract but it's it's regulated like a gambling association would be right okay so it's that's why it's banned in so many places yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah i'm just thinking i mean we do have we also widen the spread during volatile periods yeah. But those are just solved because we are taking on more risk. If it's a yeah. a, a, a more volatile period, it, it's higher chance for us making a loss and then so that's reflected in, in, the, in the spread. Yeah. But yeah. that's nothing to do with, as, as uh, my host mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like your CFD broker can see your positions. Institutional uh, market makers cannot. And the reason is because of the regulation involving CFDs, which is why they're banned in the US and a lot of other countries. Yeah. But yeah, that, that's the main thing. Uh, I did have another question, which is about, uh, this isn't from TikTok, but just what are you doing right now in your personal accounts? Are you investing in anything? Are you staying in cash? Yeah, um, that's a good question. Um, I am. It, it, it's soft tricky, right? You think about inflation, you think about, uh, think about soft holding on to cash because you know the market's going to go down further, yeah. maybe. Uh, on the other hand, you have situations where you think mm, maybe all the, 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 the interest rate hikes have been priced in. And maybe the market's bottomed out and it's only going to go up. Yeah. And so it's always this, this tricky environment, which I guess all of us sort of go through, where we are like, yeah. do we, you know, hold on to cash and the market's bottomed out? Do you put in the money in, in the stocks yeah. that you think are value or value stocks and, and go for it? Or do you still hold on to it? Or uh, personally, what I like to do is uh, currently I have a lot of my money already put into the market. Okay. And um in risky assets like S and P, no, or... no, I I'm okay. quite 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 safe. I do uh, I mean I guess it depends on how you look at it. For me, uh, most of my money is in tech stocks, okay. U.S. tech stocks. Um, primarily the the big ones, Amazon, Apple, and Microsoft. Yeah, you can call them risky. Maybe you can call them not that risky. I would probably say they're not that risky. Okay. Uh, they're growth stocks, and right now, for example, Amazon's doing really bad in terms of stuff. The, the price are really low. It's eighty nine dollars per share. Um, up from the peak of 186, I think last year yeah. uh, it was. So I think it's trading at a really, really good discounted price, and so I've taken the bulge yeah. and and put in the money. Apple, Apple's down to 139, I think. Yeah. Um, and even though last week it went I high, uh, as up as I think 155. Yeah. But it's come down to 139, so I've put a lot of money in there. Microsoft gone down, but I think these are all companies that are gonna do well. Yeah. Uh, you know, Apple holds on to a, is sitting on a lot of cash. Yeah. Um, that that it holds and it has. You know, uh, Apple as a, as a product is very very sticky. 
people have sort of moved on to to Macs uh, or iPhones really like the product and uh, want to continue with it and yeah. you know you have the, the frenzy where every time Apple comes up with a new product you know everyone wants to get their hands on the latest ones yeah so yeah. they have like this really sticky point and people are very uh, conscious about owning them uh, so I think they have a good market in place they also are getting into uh, services so yeah. you have uh, you know, all of these services that are provided for the, the Apple products. Yeah. They also get to healthcare. They want to soft pivot themselves into a health company. I don't know if people have heard of that or not. I haven't heard but of it. So with, you're, you're with, very bullish Apple. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm <laughs> very, very bullish Apple. <laughs> because a lot of my money is at stake over there. <laughs> but also, I think I think as, as a company, it's doing a few things that are very, very, uh, that, that are really good. Yeah. Uh, for example, with Apple Watch, they want to soft pivot into health. Uh, they want to make sure that Apple Watch can be used as, as soft yeah. uh indicating to your, your family or people about your health if, yeah. if you've sort of fallen down the stairs or something like that that's pretty cool yeah and i think uh and they really want to sort of push down into it they were also talks about apple moving to uh cars self-driving yes. cars i don't know if that's gonna happen it's, you've been hearing about that since the last five years or something yeah. uh they've got into partnerships with with goldman and so on for offering financial services so i think yeah. there are a lot of potential there there's a lot of scope for growth and even if the the product businesses sort of seems to be sort of stalling you have the service sites that, yeah. that they seem to be growing amazon where do i even start you know you have amazon offering aws services around the world everyone's sort of using that yeah. they've revolutionized the field uh i don't know a single quant dev that hasn't used aws yeah exactly exactly <laughs> so all of us use it uh, yes. not just in our field but even in in big banks small banks startups everywhere you yeah. see you know it, it's really really good you if you think about buying something online everyone thinks about amazon and so and they are investing a lot of money in technology in r d yeah they're surprisingly diversified yeah like, yeah they're, they're, they're diversifying into a lot of things and i think they're doing a really good job i think the, yeah. the price that's available right now it's really cheap yeah. uh, so i would be very very bullish about it i think and and the sort of the horizon i'm looking at is, is five years ten years and i think in five to ten years i think these companies are going to do really well yeah. Even though the market right now seems sideways and seem to not be sort of going anywhere. Yeah, yeah. So I'm doing something very similar. Like I, I dollar cost average into a tech ETF and right. the S&P 500. Right. So the tech ETF is focused on all the names you just mentioned. Yeah. Uh, I think Apple and Microsoft are the highest names in there. Yeah. In, in weight. And then the S&P 500, obviously just the S&P 500. Yeah. yeah. And then I'm also currently rolling U.S. Treasuries. Oh. So short-term bills. Right. So that I do that through my Charles uh, Schwab account. Mm-hmm. Just because it's like five six percent yield, and they expire every three months, and so like when I have my major cash positions, I I stopped all the cost averaging, right? Because I I I think I stopped maybe a month and a half ago, just because I'm like I think it's gonna go a lot lower. Uh, but you think it's gonna go a lot lower? Yeah, like I think I think the market is too uh, bullish on what's gonna happen. So the pricing rate cuts for next year. And the Fed is saying, we're not going to do that. We're going to keep rates high for longer, for as long as it takes. Really? And obviously, the Fed has changed the narrative quite often. And yeah. you know, no one knows what's going to happen. It's all data dependent. But I think when we're dealing with 10% inflation rates, it takes an average of six months for rate hikes to translate yeah. into the economy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not even at peak terminal rate yet. The Fed says it's, it's going to be 5 or 6%. Yeah. Once we get there, we have to stay there for longer to see that long-term inflation come down. Right. And they're going to keep it longer to see the data feed through because they're not going to see the effects of their hikes come through yet. Yeah. So I think the market pricing of cuts by end of 23 is a bit 
bit too bullish for me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do agree with it. Uh, they are saying that the, they want to get the the employment numbers are gonna go twice of what it is currently. It has to. And, and, and yeah. in the UK, and it's gonna be a lot. Of, it's gonna be very painful. Yeah. But I also feel, and 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 you're right. You you never know with with Feds to be honest. Uh, they sort of change their narrative. Data every, dependent. Yeah. <laughs> Quote unquote. <laughs> they change their narrative every so often. Yeah. Um. Uh, so it's it's tough to say, but I. Yeah, and. I mean, personally, I feel given the, the stocks that I'm investing in or the, or the monies that the, the stocks that I'm putting my money in, they're all stable stuff. Yeah. And even yeah. if uh, they go down, I'm just going to start, keep buying, keep yeah. buying, and hopefully it's going to go up. I think that's definitely the right thing to do if you already own something. Like, mm. So I would do the same thing in my ETFs. The only issue is I can, um, I'm, I'm worried they're going to go down. And I think a safer bet for me personally is to roll the treasuries on every three months. And because I don't, own, I don't own any single names either. Right. So, sorry. Like, so, it, like, if you own a single name, I think it makes sense to add more to it. But if you own an index, you're just kind of diversified already. It doesn't make yeah, sense yeah, to buy a fraction much. of Apple, a oh. fraction of yeah. whatever. Yeah. So, like, if you're very bullish on these names, it makes a lot of sense to keep adding. Uh, yeah, so, like, uh, that's kind of what I'm doing. I also had some crypto algorithms running. I, I stopped them out recently uh, just because... Everything was going sideways, and I until the macro environment clears up, I don't see the point in turning yeah, it back on. Yeah, because yeah. some of them are momentum-based algorithms, and one of them was a uh, crypto exchange arbitrage one, which again works on the concept of spreads that we spoke about, and that doesn't work very well anymore because when everything is sideways, everything gets priced like everything is trading yeah, sideways yeah. in a low volatility environment. Everything's cheap. The spreads between exchanges are super small, so I can't make much fees. That's that's. Not doing anything uh what's your personal opinion on crypto by any chance like are, do you trade uh, any do i don't trade any, any. Okay. i sort of stay away from it and that's only because i don't understand it too well hmm. and uh that's probably down to me not sort of trying to understand it uh and also i just sort of like to stay away from it right now i'm again quite risk averse uh, okay. so i just want to invest in the safer sort of investments things you I understand think, and, which yeah. i understand yeah and you know there's a lot more information available about about uh the companies that I invest in, so you can look at the the sort of portfolio. You can look at the the um, the balance sheet, understand what what's going on with the in, yeah. in the company with cryptos. Because I don't understand it, it's it's you know one of those where I don't want to play with fire because I'm afraid of getting burned. You know. Yes, yeah, completely fair. Like crypto is definitely one of those environments where the tech is hard to understand, the use case is hard to understand, and the retail momentum driven hype around the entire industry right, it's so exactly. high that it's very hard to exactly, distinguish exactly. what's fundamental yeah, and what's yeah, momentum yeah. Uh, which does, it, obviously you can trade both and there's a lot of people that trade the fundamental side of things there are genuine use cases for a lot of these things like um, I don't know if you've heard of uh, Stellar it's like a cryptocurrency they're not that big but they're insanely popular in financial services because yeah. they provide blockchain technology yeah. Like, they're basically like a software solutions company. They have a token associated with them, but most financial services companies use them because they're one of the only crypto companies that are really, really risk averse and really follow regulations for whatever company that wants to partner with them. So like, uh, I don't know if you've heard about this rave about tokenization happening in, in financial services. No, no, you haven't. So there's a portion of asset management where clients get like a unit in like a fund. It could be like a a sits an ETF or whatever. So like mm -hmm. when you buy an ETF, you get a unit. The process of transferring that into someone's name is done through a transfer agent in the industry. And a transfer agent takes a fee 
from, and that gets transferred onto the client. So your client paying that, that 3% or whatever fee you'd normally see or 0.1% or whatever it normally is on ETFs or USITs, that goes partially to these transfer agents and partially to the asset manager. Yeah. And if you tokenize the asset, you can cut out the transfer agent and you eliminate that source of fees for your client. So there's a huge trend in the industry now to tokenize existing funds as well as tokenizing illiquid things like private equity investments, things like carbon credits. Really? And um, that's really popular actually right now is like tokenizing illiquid things because, uh, and this is mostly for primary market issuance. So like if you want to buy uh, a part of, an, of a private equity fund, it's completely primary markets. Not many people have access to it. There's, they have a certain amount of money, money to yeah, the right yeah. kind of people. Yeah. But if you tokenize the entire fund, you can buy, you can buy a of fraction it. of it. Right, right, right. And th that way you're able to raise money better. People can get access to these oh, markets better. Right, right, right. I've heard something similar happening in uh, real assets. So a lot of people sort of want to get into farms. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's really funny because coming um, on, on my way over here, I was reading this article where they said that Bill Gates is investing a lot of its money in, in farmlands in the US. Okay. And 1% of the entire farmland in the US is owned by Bill Gates as of now. I, I, I and that's a huge number if you think about it. Yeah. Um, and so it also highlights how, you know, if you sort of want to buy 10 acres of, of land, that's probably going to be, you know, um, a, a million dollars or something like that. Yeah. And most people don't have that, that sort of money. Yeah. But if you tokenize it and you do sit down, you can buy parts of it. And so, you know, you can have a certain per percentage of land. And that way you're also owning real assets because, you know, yeah. with, with inflation going on, a lot of people want to get into real assets. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, with, with everything going on with, with war and so on and so forth, I don't think what's going to end. Yeah. And, you know, how do you hedge that, you know? You, 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 this becomes really, really good way of hedging your, your risk and your positions. Yeah. Getting yeah. to real, real assets and, and tokenizing it is a great way to make sure small sort of people, small retail investors can get into it. Yeah, I can't remember who did this, but like, there was an article that came out like many years ago about, I think it was some sort of real estate company in Miami, I think. I think that yeah, tokenized yeah. real yeah, estate. Yeah, so you yeah, could yeah. buy a portion of an yeah, apartment. Yeah, I can't yeah. remember who did this, yeah. but like it was, that was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> that was really cool. Yeah. The other, other asset class that I can think of that this is happening, I think, is, is art. Is oh, art. Art. Yes, you're seeing so, it in NFTs. Yes, already, right? yes. And so you have all of these companies and all of these paintings that are really expensive. And that's of the price is derived from what people want to pay for that. Yeah. But again, because these are so expensive, a normal retail customer cannot sort of get into it. Yeah. And if they want to hedge out the portfolio, diversify the portfolio, that's really, really good way of sort of tokenizing it and getting into it. True. And but, so like my only pushback against tokenizing things that are semi-liquid is you can buy an index that tracks it. And that's probably going to be cheaper than tokenizing something. Because like if you think about it from like a company point of view, so like uh, for certain things, I agree. Like if you're paying a lot of fees for transfer agents for particular funds, mm. that makes sense. If it's an illiquid market, that makes sense. But let's say you're tokenizing Apple shares. We already that have fractional. Yeah. We already have yeah. fractional yeah. shares. Yeah. Yeah. Or like if you're tokenizing artwork, we already have art indices. We already have like indices for things like whiskey and wine. Right. Well, for, to be honest, I didn't really know that the index, uh, indices. I don't know how liquid they are, but I, I know they exist, and I don't know how, what the fees look like if you wanted to buy yeah. them, yeah. but. To be honest, I guess I mean give, I guess one of the ideas behind tokenizing is that it becomes available to to people. Yeah. Again, if you index index thing, it it becomes easier because you can then buy a part of it, and yeah. you don't have to buy an entire collection of of art or one, one painting that's worth a million dollars or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I like the the novelty of it. I like how it's of 
socialist in that sense, breaking down barriers and yeah. making these asset classes available to people who wouldn't be able to afford it otherwise. I think it's a, I think it's one of the best things that's happened to finance this tokenization because it bring it opens the floodgates for retail investors to invest in things that were otherwise inaccessible. Yep, yep. That's why I want it to happen in private equity. I want it to happen in these other industries because they're insanely illiquid and typically you need to be a high net worth individual to, to, yeah, to participate. Yep, yep, yep. Same thing with hedge funds and whatever. The reason I like it is because we've seen from Robinhood that these guys have an influence on the markets. Whether it's positive or negative, it doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. But I like the fact that it's people have a voice now. They yeah, can express yeah, their yeah. opinions. They yeah. can come up with their investment theses on Reddit or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they can go be degenerates yeah. if they want to. Yeah, so. yeah. No, I <laughs> and, completely uh, agree with that. I, yeah. I actually love the idea as well. Uh, the fact that you're, you're making the market more accessible to people. Yeah. And, um, you know, if, if it works, it does not work, whatever happens, whatever the philosophies are, it, it's up to them, but at least it's making them available where, where, you know, they can do what they want to do. So I think I really like the idea as well, yes. Yeah, definitely. All right, let's jump into some questions before we get some comments and be like, why didn't you answer any of the questions? <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. All right, let's see here. Solve some third degree equations. <laughs> no one's going to ask you to do integration anymore. <laughs> I won't be able to do it. <laughs> uh, okay, so someone is asking, this is... <laughs> His name is Gonorrhea. Uh, any tips on how to be a quant without a master's or a PhD? Uh, this person is a final year math student for, yeah. for reference. No, that, that's an interesting uh, question. And firstly, it's extremely possible now. I don't think degrees of hold, again, it's of breaking down those barriers. Degrees are no longer the gatekeepers that prevented you from getting to these industries or fields just because you did not graduate from, you know, Harvard or MIT with a degree in, in pure quantitative field. Yeah. I think what most of these people, at least uh, banks that that bank that I'm working with, what, what people are looking for are people who are curious, who are smart, who are willing to sort of question the status quo. Yeah. You obviously need to know a certain amount of, of tech on your side. You need to know, you understand, need to understand the market and so on, but it's yeah. not very tough. Um, um, if I remember correctly, you said he's a final year math student, so yeah. you already do understand the math behind a lot of stuff, you understand the quantitative field, all you need to do is sort of brush up on your basic tech stuff. Yeah. And you know, you should be able to get in. But, and, and we've had people who studied, you know, philosophy who have sort of interned in, in, in our banks. Yeah. And it's not tough because what happens is... But is, is that in quant or is that in general? In, in, in general. Okay. But, okay. but for example, the thing is, these things are easy to teach. For example, the Asila that I work in, yeah. FX market is not tough to understand. If you understand bid, you know, ask. You know, your, your, your game, you know, yeah. what you need to understand is you need to have the, the curiosity to learn, curiosity to question stuff. Yeah. Uh, if you're able to think critically, break down complex ideas into simpler structures and simpler forms and understand, I think that that's what counts. And that's what should be uh, the ways of go about it. Yeah. But, yeah. I so, think, I think if people have a skill set, they're definitely capable of showing yeah. that and that, that would definitely shine through. Yeah. I do know a lot of graduate schemes nowadays, they do have a minimum masters okay. and I, I've seen a lot of pools for jobs that are typically entry-level quant positions that are normally minimum masters okay. half the pools now that apply are typically PhDs I guess okay this is my unpopular opinion over here yeah I think what's happened in UK and Europe yeah is that it's quite cheap to get a PhD or, or a master's because you know you have the, the government sponsoring it yeah. or you have the state sponsoring it Okay. Or even if you're working as a PhD student, you have certain amount of money that, that you're, you're making through through the government funds and, and grants and so on. Yeah. And so what happens is a lot of people try to get into these degrees and try to do a master's 
And what happens is that that skews the market. So now that you have 100 people doing PhDs or, or masters because it's easily accessible to do it in certain countries. Yeah. The number of jobs that are available, people with these higher degrees are going to apply. Yeah. And so automatically the barriers of ships up. Yeah. yeah. What happened in US is because it's so expensive to do it. And it's so time consuming. You have to pay it from your own pocket. A lot of people don't end up going for masters or, or PhDs. And right. so if you see similar roles advertised in US, would probably have people from undergrad degrees doing it yeah. and similar role in UK and Europe you'd probably have have people with masters or PhDs of going for it and applying for it yeah I definitely and, agree. And it's really tough I mean if you look at 100 applications as a recruiter you get on your table yeah 90 of them have PhDs and you have to sort of you know filter, go, them, out. filter them out you're yeah. obviously gonna be like you know what if 90 PhDs are applying let's just, just remove these 10 people who've just have undergrad degrees yeah yeah and I think I think the industry is aware of that. So like in the UK, you have apprenticeships right. and you have graduate schemes where you can apply for quant stuff yeah. as well. Yeah. So I know NatWest does a graduate scheme. I know a lot of different companies in the UK do graduate schemes where the yeah. minimum is just a bachelor's. Yeah. And I think they're aware of this, but I think I agree it's to do with the saturation and the accessibility. But I also think a lot of the problem is with the universities and the quality of the education. Like we saw this in our master's as well. Like we, it, the quality of education is extremely nowadays i think i completely agree even at high yes. level universities yeah. like we yeah. went to i'm yeah. not going to say the name but we went to a pretty well high yeah. level yeah. university yeah. Yeah. for it's, masters it's, it's in the probably the top 10 in the world if you look at the yeah the global you know ratings of rankings of the other universities so it was really awful well, yeah it was awful and there's there, there no two ways to sort of say it it yeah. was awful it was really really bad we can sort of blame that oh maybe because of covid and remote learning maybe it was bad but it, it was already a year into yeah, COVID, yeah. Right? So and, like it and, was, and the, yeah. the, the quality of education offered by the professors was probably not up to the bar but not just that this is a master's level degree that i'm talking about even if you look at undergraduate uh, undergraduate degrees in uk I'm just surprised the number of holidays that you get, you know, yeah. it's something that I was not aware of a three year degree over here. You're probably in a year spending four months as, as part of vacation or, or holidays or, you know, you have Easter, you have this and that. So you have four year degrees, so three year degree so ends up becoming a two year degree because four years, four years, four years, so gets this cut out as, as yeah, I mean, I think part and of these it... are again unpopular opinion. You know, people don't have to agree with me and yeah. they have to be like, oh, you don't want us to take vacations now and don't, yeah. don't want us to celebrate Christmas. You, completely do that you know celebrate christmas and celebrate all of the festivals that you want to celebrate yeah. but at the same time if you're offering a three-year degree and if you're spending one entire year as part of vacation and it just ends up becoming a two-year degree then you really need to look at at, at you know the degree yeah. and see if you're getting getting the value that you're, you're you're after yeah i think students are the victims here yeah like, even though you get more vacation time and more time between so like uh, the way i had it in the uk for my my undergrad was like you had a, a lot of months before your exams, whether it was your first term or your second term, but you had maybe two and a half to three months before you had to do the exams, yeah. which is typically study leave. Yeah. No one studies. Yeah. And you don't need those three, four months to do this stuff, but they were there, which meant that you're you're paying like insane amounts of money for what exactly. should be like a three, four yeah. year degree. Yeah. And it's not. And I think the quality of education is probably my biggest gripe. Like, I think it's... I don't know if it's just a UK thing. I think it's a global thing because of the number of students that are getting pushed into education. It just makes sense that you water down the level of education so you can teach it quicker, pump out more students, and earn more money. I think I think education as a business is kind yeah, of formed I, into that. I guess I guess yeah. To yeah, the, the, okay. The, the two points that I have, I'm sort of yeah. <laughs> struggling because there's so much, so many things that I want to say. I completely agree. Yes. The number of people who are getting into university education is way higher. 
but that does not solve mean that you saw watered down. I think you have different levels of education. You have different universities where you have people who are sort of scored higher in the and you know school yeah, can go yeah. to a better, but uh, you know better than university whether the education stuff or the quality of students are coming in are sort of slightly higher. But they're taking in more of them, right? So like surely, if you think about the attention per student that a professor might have for the quality of education to teach those students, like I know on our course we. We took in people that shouldn't have been on the course. Yeah. 100%. And they were brought in on like bare margins and they struggled throughout the whole thing. They still passed it with probably flying colors because right. it was during COVID. Yeah. And it really watered down the course, I think. Yeah. And like, I, I completely agree with it. And just to sort of put it in perspective for some of our, our, our listeners over here, the way it worked is we had people from different backgrounds coming in. So people who had studied pure con stuff, you know, yep. maths and physics and, and computer science. And, but on the other hand, you have people that studied economics or, or you know, sort of a less quantitative degree. And yep. so when you bring all these people together, you sort of need to bring them at the same level, which meant yep. that people from less, uh, you know, quant quantitative degrees had to learn those, those calculus. And which meant the soft co- the, the entire education level sort of went down as, 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 yeah, half, as like- my host put it. it yeah, because like as a professor, you kind of need to do that yeah. in a way to bring up like you can't just teach people if half of them don't understand what you're saying. Right. So you need to like do these. That's why there were so many like these these like seminars, right? And like like teaching sessions, just because to help those people. No one attended. They know they knew no one was going to attend because of the time differences because of COVID. But this is this is what my what my suggestion is. Why don't you make sure that people, even if you hire these, get these people into the course because you want that money and yeah. you want the international dollars to flow into your 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 your, your bank. Why don't you make sure that these people learn those skills before they come in, you know? Tell them that these are the preparatory courses. If you can't do it, I'm sorry, you're going to have to fail. That's what I thought we were already doing. Like, I, I know for our course, <laughs> like, I thought that the minimum was, like, insanely quantitative. Yeah, yeah. Like, it didn't even specify what it was. It just said it had to be quantitative. And then you would apply, they would verify whether or not it was quantitative, and then you would get enrolled, right? If you had the good enough grades or something. And it was just so surprising to me. And it wasn't just our course. Like, I had people at, again, maybe top five universities in the world that had the same problem. And it was like, it was, I think the quality of education since COVID has only gone down, is like my, my controversial opinion. I think it was already on a steady decline, right. but I think COVID was like, kind of like the catalyst that yeah. made it even worse. No, I, I do agree. Yeah, I, I can definitely see COVID sort of uh, exacerbating that, that sort of issue yeah. and making it worse. Um, I'm just thinking... From a university point of view, they're, they're doing it because they don't really have enough money and they probably need the international dollars to sort of flow into their account. Yeah, yeah. And it sort of then goes, goes back to the fact that maybe the universities require this money either because the salaries that are being paid out to the, the boards are really, really high and they're yeah. paying some really insane amount of money places where they shouldn't be paying. Yeah. And there should be an overhaul of the, the business model of universities. Yeah. Or either universities need to be sort of taken back by by uh, the government. I don't know how does it work. Are these private universities? Do they have facilities? Are they funded by the government? Are they funded by just the, just the tuition fee of the students? They're partially funded by the government here. I think I think I like the Scandinavian model is to make them all free. Because right. that way it forces universities to kind of compete with one another for quality. Because like if no one has to pay for it, they get fully funded by the government. I think the only logical way you can compete is through quality of education. Right. But if you're paying for it, then you have an incentive to get more students in okay. and an incentive to water down the education to pump out more students year on year in order to 
like if the course is easier, more people are going to apply, more people are going to pass. You look better in stats. People apply, you get more money. So like I think this is kind of business cycle kind of yeah. aspect to it that but, kind of ruins it. If this this phenomena we are observing in Europe and UK, yeah. do you think it's not happening in the US? I think it is. I think it is in the US as well. Like I've heard the same thing. So I don't know about other degrees, but for quant in specific, they're all being taught by business schools now, and no one is hiring those people right. for masters specifically. Like um, I, I spoke to a couple of guys about this because like my, my company is mostly based in the US, mm -hmm. and uh, I got sent maybe a hundred CVs for quants, and and there was, we literally had a discussion about this in the global quant team. Right. So like I, I work at fixed income, but we spoke to people from the global quant team and equities and FX and all these other asset classes. And we all have the same opinion, which is like anyone from a quant business school, a quant degree from a business school, who? And, and the main argument for that is like, they don't get taught any maths. They don't get taught any stats. We don't care how much you know about finance. We don't know. We don't care how much you know about accounting. None of that stuff matters. What matters is the yeah. fundamental mathematics and stats. Because yeah. Yeah. you can, like you mentioned before with your FX thing, you can easily teach finance. Like 90% yeah. of it is just jargon. Yep. Like 100 percent. Yeah, yeah. So like, it's a lot <laughs> yeah. easier to teach yeah. jargon than yeah. it is to teach fundamental mathematics. Yeah. Like, how do you teach someone integration by substitution yeah. for the first time, or, or, or sorry, integration and, and by you, completing you the square? You can't do that once you've started work. You can't exactly. you know, ask someone to sort of sit down and explain integration to them. You can sit down and explain how bits work and spreads work, and you know yeah. what what uh, butterfly options or something like that. You know, yeah, but yeah, but yeah. it's really tough to explain. So I completely agree. But yeah, and so. You are right. I guess that the, the, the way to go about it is Scandinavian model where you make it free and so you make the universities. Uh, yeah, I think that's You just... really need to question where, where the universities are coming from, honestly. And they can sort of put it very yeah. easily that, okay, we maybe they're competing for the, the, the international dollars in, in the market and want to get these international Chinese and Indian students and, and from around the world. And... From, like, from a foreign perspective, and I'm sure you agree, it's, pre it's prestigious hmm. to go to a foreign university, yeah. wherever it is. And if you attract those kind of students have become well known for that prestige just earn more money from foreign people you hedge out your bets and your local like your local country as well makes sense all right i think we should change the topic yeah. about universities for, <laughs> i don't know how long this is like i don't know 20 minutes um we got a question from nick what languages are quant devs mostly using python c plus plus like uh, again this is such a broad soft topic it uh, again depends on asset classes the asset class that we deal with export is very very um, you know, very, very liquid, yeah. which means it's high frequency, low latency. So you need to use something like C++, yeah. which requires you to program really fast. You can process stuff fast because what's happening is we are looking at markets at so many different, um, you know, levels and pricing all of that has to be done really quickly. But we have some of the other, we have FX forwards that's built in Java. Yeah. We have some of our other stuff that's built in C, C Sharp. So it, it is agnostic to a language. It depends on what functionality it is trying to meet. If it's looking for something that's, you know, garbage collecting and something that needs yeah. to run at long periods of time, yeah. Java is the way to go. If you're looking at something that's low latency, C++, you're yeah. looking for something that needs to be, you know, churned faster and you don't really care about latency. You know, you're talk talking about structured products or something like that. Python sort of does the trick because it's really quick to get in, uh, create strategies, you know, test stuff and so yeah. on. So yeah. you have all sorts of languages. What, what again, comes down to the core, uh, what, what sort of comes down to it is... The skill set that you bring, yeah. languages can be taught. As long as you understand the fundamentals of technology, understand the fundamentals of how do you program, yeah. how do you sort of go about it, how do you make stuff, um, you know, that can be deployed in a production environment, I think you're, you're, you're good. 
Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. Like, I think the it kind of goes back to the whole education thing. Like, if you know your fundamentals well, you know your maths well, you know your stats well, it doesn't matter what program your lang- your, your pro- yeah. like your language you're programming in because you should be able to implement those models and those those procedures in any language. Yeah. The math is the same. Yeah. So you're just learning notation from a programming. Exactly. Exactly. And those things are not tough, honestly. I mean, you can you can pick these things up if you're smart enough to pick up the, the complex math stuff. Yeah, yeah, you're more than capable enough to pick up those things. I do hate C plus plus though, with <laughs> <laughs> a burning passion. <laughs> and why is that? Hmm? Why, why is that? Why do you I hate just, I, I just I it's not intuitive for me to program in it. Like mm-hmm. the way I think in in like in terms of like processing and, and programming. I can translate that into Python more easily than yeah. something like C++. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's more things you need to worry about in C++ than there absolutely, are in Python. Absolutely, absolutely. And you, I completely agree with you. It's not an easy language to program in. It's yeah. the, the too many, you know, uh, what are those called? Pitfalls that you can fall into. Yeah. And so hurt yourself and hurt the program. At least you don't, you don't have Python is more memory. intuitive. Yeah. It's easy to program. And that's the reason why it's become more access, accessible to, to a lot of people. People yeah. from background that you know, do not study, you know, engineering, are yeah. able to get into this field because Python made it accessible. Yeah, and, that's and, true. and that's really good. Yeah, definitely. Like, so I, I kind of work in between quant dev and quant researcher as well. And it's very similar. Like we use mostly Python, okay. but we still need to know how to do other things. Yeah. Like, uh, like the amount of production code that needs to be low latency, obviously you're going to have something that needs to be like that. And there's no way you're programming that in Python. Yeah. Like yeah. the amount, of, how slow it is, is insane. Yeah, yeah. And so being able to control every aspect of that process, like because you have you have to define yeah. it in C plus yeah. plus, it makes it a lot easier to get that control of your latency. And so sometimes you do have to do that. Uh, but I also think like if you're from a quant dev background, you also need to know core technologies as well. Uh, maybe for Python specific, but things like Docker, Kubernetes, orchestration of different yeah. systems, that's pretty important too. I don't know if you if you do that in your yeah, place. Yeah, so but... again, it comes down to the size of the team, I, I would yeah. say. You have some teams that are so vast that you have a separate DevOps team. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where they're going to handle all of this. All you need to do is work on the core algorithm stuff, work on the core pricing and hedging models, yeah. and rest of it is taken care of. Yeah. Some of the teams that, uh, on, on the other hand, you have some of the smaller teams where you have to handle, you know, end-to-end where you're deploying stuff, and so you need to understand DevOps, you need to understand... Kubernetes and, and, and Docker, I need to understand how to deploy stuff, Ansible, and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So I think it sort of comes down to size of the team and what sort of responsibilities are there. Yeah. But again, yeah. these are tough. If you look, think about it and you'd be like, oh, I don't understand, you know, bash scripting because, you know, that, that, that that's fundamental, that's something that we use, but that's something I didn't know. But these things are things that can be learned on the job. They are not tough. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so they... These things should deter you from applying to these positions because you're like, I don't meet the criteria, I don't understand bash scripting, I don't know Python. It's okay, you don't understand these. Yeah. Let's see what do you understand, how can you think, and, and so on and so forth. I think these things are easily accessible. You shouldn't stop yourself from applying to positions just because no, you definitely don't. definitely not, yeah. And go out there, apply, try your best, and if things work out, will they work out? Yeah. Get the job that you're after. Yeah, I think that's don't, good don't, advice. Don't stop yourself just because you think that you shouldn't be the reason that you don't get a job, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. you shouldn't stop yourself from even applying because there's nothing wrong with applying. Yeah. You think it's too out of your reach, go for it. Yeah. Apply for the CEO position of a company. Yeah. What's there to lose? Yeah. <laughs> you go to the, to the <laughs> to interview, you embarrass yourself, they ask questions that you don't have answers to, you, you go home, cry, 
Eat a burger, sleep. You know. Eat a burger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but do, do you understand my point? Like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like the job descriptions those, are. Yeah. They're very and, targeted. But, and yeah. yeah, exactly. And they try to sound. Um, you know, these HRs don't even understand most of the stuff when, when they're putting out these these job they don't, postings. Yeah, no, it does. <laughs> Just honestly apply to the job. If you think you meet 50% of the criteria, apply. What's the worst that's going to happen? You're not going to hear back from them. You'll or burn. you hear back, yeah. you go to the interview, they ask questions you can't answer. You just learn something new. Yeah. Yeah. You, know? you learn something new, you know how something works, yeah. you move on. Like it, it, that, That's what the job application yeah. process is about. You yeah. fail 90% of the time and then maybe... And you should be open way. to failure, you know, you should be open to rejection. There's that's nothing wrong with it, everyone yeah. goes through it. And just a learning curve. Yeah, definitely, 100% agree. Like, uh, I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself a software engineer or anything near to it. But when I was brought into the role, that was the expectation. Good. So like, I'm working with existing systems in Python, I'm like... Okay, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Let's, let's figure this out. So yeah. I just, you sit down, you put pen to paper. Yeah. You figure out what you need to learn, how, when you need to learn it by, and you just fill in the, the yeah. gaps. Like, I think that that's the one good thing about university, especially at a higher level like master's or a PhD, is that you learn how to figure things out by yourself. Absolutely, absolutely. I think, and that that's how it comes down to it. it it's all about critical thinking, and yeah. so it does not matter if you studied engineering or you studied, mm. you know, some philosophy or anthropology because these things if it's a good course yeah. they would teach you the right skills it will teach you to think critically yeah. question stuff break down complex things read a lot of information break it down and so on and those are important skills that, that you know people should be after yeah definitely so I do have some more questions this yeah. one is servant of god yeah. <laughs> uh, is it possible for retail to model regime change and how would you go about it if you were a retail trader what does that even mean model regime so regime changes like if let's say you're modeling volatility regimes or model regime right okay so like from my perspective I would do that with like a hit Markov model maybe a Bayesian model although I hate Bayesian statistics with a burning passion <laughs> um, but you, you, can, you can answer if you, if you have any opinions on that uh, honestly I don't uh, I don't <laughs> okay. even understand the question too well to be honest so uh, like regime changes if you're looking at a time series and they, or like a, a signal or whatever it might be and you want to see if the signal is inherently different from its past how would you model those structural breaks? Oh, right, okay. I'm going to come back to you on that. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine, that's fine. Uh, so yeah. I guess I mean, it comes down to what you were saying, right? You you said how some of these cryptocurrency uh, algorithms that you had deployed, they don't work as well right now yeah. because the market's sort of sideways. Yeah. But what do you do if your old strategies don't work, you see what's happening currently and then deploy new ones? Yeah. But so you should that's... be always open to understanding that you know what yeah this one's not working let's move on to the next one that's my whole job yeah that, that, <laughs> that's, that, 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 that's, that's what quants yeah. do we build things they break we build new things yeah and it's all, all about feedback i think <laughs> i think what's happened is again it's all about the the the, the failure and uh, we are afraid of failure yeah. we are afraid of things not working out and something that you can learn really well from silicon valley is the philosophy of moving fast and breaking things yeah Deploy stuff, it breaks, understand it, feedback it, you know, version two, which is slightly better. It yeah. breaks again, do something else and keep working at it, you know. It's a good show to be fair. And <laughs> honestly, that's how it works. Yeah. You are not going to hit the jackpot at the first try, especially if you're starting out for the first time in the field. Yeah. You start in momentum trade and realize that it's all, you know, mean reversion. And next day you deploy mean reversion and you realize that this doesn't work. And it's, it's fine. Try yeah. to figure out what works and, and do it. Yeah. You make some loss and that's the reason you don't go all in. You don't sell your house and, you know, 
yeah. over leverage your position. Yeah. Your small positions, understand how is it working. If you think you're making money, put in more money yeah. and so on. But always put money that you're willing to lose. And this is for retail, by the way, like in the... <laughs> yeah, and even, even like, unless you have a proven formula that works 100% of the time, which you will never have, this doesn't exist. Don't, don't go all in. Yeah. Understand what, what are the risks if you're willing to lose that money and be smart about it. Yeah, yeah, and that's completely fair. Yeah, And be open sense. to changing stuff. Things break. Things don't work out. Yeah. The market's so volatile right now. We are, we are unprecedented time. We are at a time where we are talking about recession and inflation at the same time. Yeah. We're talking about some people are saying we're already in recession. Bank of England, for example. But unemployment is close and, to the, and cl- the Exactly. exactly. <laughs> unemployment's not changed at all over yeah. here. People have raised interest rates from 0. Point something to 3% now and employment's not happening. Uh, not gone anywhere. Yeah. So it, it, we sometimes just don't know. And honestly, people who... You know, set at these positions, just don't know what's going on themselves. What you need to do is look at the, the information in front of you and take the call that you can take. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, fair. So from Madam President, huh? and this was a pretty liked question, uh, what are your thoughts on quantum computing, if you have any? Uh, I, I don't understand it well enough to, to, to answer that. I don't understand well enough too. I know someone from my team left recently to pursue a PhD in quantum computing at Imperial. Yeah. Um, I don't understand it too well. What I do know is that there are possibilities and there are a lot of uh, use cases for it, I guess, in future. But right now, the, the, the technology is in nascent stage. We are not ready to sort of use it. But we definitely do need people to be working on these things because that, that's what the future holds. Yeah. We are hitting limits in terms of um, hardware limits in terms of what the uh, a single silicon chip can do the number of processing it can do yeah and so you need to move in, move on to newer technologies that sort of breaks the barrier and gets into new things yeah that makes sense i thought they almost found us here for a second like they were like oh they found out my re- my insider trading and, I was good. <laughs> and then they're here to pick me up yep, yeah all right <laughs> see you guys <laughs> and then yeah. right here <laughs> um so I, I got I got quite a few questions about modeling, so I'm just gonna bunch them up. Right. Uh, what sort of models do you use in your job if you're able to? So most it? of our models uh, are machine learning driven. Yeah. So we are using RNN models. Um, okay. If you're talking about these bulge banks, they're not as flexible as startups. So when we do a really long backtest process of three months, yeah. deploy stuff. By the time it's gone in, maybe the conditions have changed. But these models have stay in for a very long time. So even though these other models that, that we are using, they're not, they're not state of the art. They're not using the latest, you know, developments and, and the research that's going on. And, and you know, well, this is C++. This is all C++. Okay. Yeah. So we are using machine learning stuff, but it, none of it is path breaking. You know, all you need to know is basic machine learning stuff. You need yeah. to understand basic neural networks and you should be. You know. Yeah. So uh, RNNs are recursive neural networks. Oh, right, in case yeah. you're Sorry. <laughs> so, like LSTMs are a part of that family as well. Yeah. In case yeah. you're interested. Yeah. Yeah. So, so so you use that to basically gauge whether or not the price is fair at that point in time, so you can get an idea of what the exactly spread is exactly. So what we do is we calculate mids. Yeah. So we are taking in all of these different market data sources. We are looking at a lot of different stuff. Yeah. And determining what's the the, the correct mid for the next tick. Yeah. And uh. And yeah, we, we sort of split that out. And then there are sort of different stuff that are added to it. Again, depending on the client, maybe we give wider spreads, thinner spreads, and so on and so forth. Is there a bad client that get wider Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. So what happens is we, we see if they trade with us and they immediately go to the market and, and we make loss or something like that, 
and they are also doing these PNL calculations, which are not absolutely accurate and they're not exact science, yeah. but there's some sort of logic to it. Yeah. And so we can sort of gauge if this client is working well for us or not as yeah. a bank. And if we think that they're not doing too well, uh, then we put them on wider spreads. Yeah. And so we have these different streams and we put them on wider streams because, you know, they're not working well for us and we're making loss. Yeah. And then also depends on what relationship we have with these clients. Their new client, their old client, how much they've traded with us, what's the liquidity that they offer to us, how much money we're able to make and so on. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty interesting. I didn't know you guys used referral neural networks. I thought it was more like um, traditional pricing in terms of like stuff we were taught back at a university. We actually use none of that. Yeah. Well, surprisingly, <laughs> we, we, I, we <laughs> hardly use anything that was taught in the degree to us. But yeah, there we are. Yeah. <laughs> I did use it once. And that was to, it was, again, someone already built the code, mm -hmm. but it was so long ago that no one understood it and that person left, so I had to understand it again. Right. But someone built code on callable bonds, right. which are pricing callable bonds with options, I should mention. Mm -hmm. So it's basically uh, puttable or um, callable bonds. So you have both types, and we were producing a fair value model for those. And uh, yeah, so basically the person that wrote it left, the model broke. No one understood it. I was the only person that did like what one term of financial engineering. <laughs> <laughs> so like, go figure it out. <laughs> What's happening here? I'm like, okay. And it was written in MATLAB, which was oh kind of insulting. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's that's the, the the one thing I like about MATLAB is it's really easy for to go back in and understand what's happening. If someone wrote that in Python, I would shoot myself on the spot <laughs> just because like how how do you like Python doesn't have an inherent library yeah. for financial engineering. It has a couple of bits and pieces, but they're all programmed into certain assumptions that are not common. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. when you're pricing things in the industry, no one uses a textbook like yeah. equation yeah. to, to yeah. price yeah. things, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so it was it was very different and it took a while to do. That was the only time I've ever had something from uni show yeah. up. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean I guess it's just Coincidentally, both of us have ended up in, in jobs or, you know, asset classes that do not require it. But I'm yeah. sure there are some people out there from our degree using what, what we study. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think that my undergraduate is probably the most important so far because I did like financial economics and stats. Uh -huh. And so the stats is insanely useful for quant. The financial economics is really important, but also the core economics part is really important for fixed income as well. Right. You understand supply and demand, how things work, how interest rates affect markets, all this kind of stuff. So it, that, that's been really useful. Um, let's see here. Do you regret doing this master's? No. Uh, I don't regret it because it was... Although I didn't get the content I wanted, I learned a lot by going out of my way and getting deeper into topics that I was interested in. Mm -hmm. And that led to a lot of opportunities. And also just all the people I met along the way. Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> they're here. <laughs> um... Do you have any books or resources you would recommend for quant finance? Oh, wow. Uh, There's only two I always talk about, which is Campbell Harvey and Marco Lopez. Yeah, yeah. But if you have any yourself, you can... I can't really, to be honest, think of any. Uh, yeah. There's not a lot of good ones. And I guess, I mean... It's, it's so hard to sort of say this, right? Because, again, because there's so much content out there and it varies yeah. so much across different stuff. How do you, like, what, what do you mean? Do you, do you want to study to, to get into a degree? Do you want to study for an interview? Do you want to study for your job? 
and so you know the the the, the job books that are recommended sort of varies across that. Yeah, like I think I think the crucial thing is it's not going to be one book that teaches you everything yeah. you need to know yeah. about quant yeah. finance yeah. or yeah. how to get a job in quant finance. It's going to take. Yeah, it's, it's it's more than that. Yeah, and I think the way this happens, this works is, and it's it's something that I made a mistake in. We, we what what happens is you search online, you're like a oh, quant finance book, best quant finance book. You yeah. read one book, and you're like, okay, fine, I'm gonna read this book, and I'm gonna be an expert tomorrow once I'm done with this book. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. It's a continuous process. You start with a book. Some books work for some people because language is is understandable. Maybe the examples examples work for some people. Some people. Yeah like books that are short and, and crisp. Some people like which are, you know, more more elaborate and expand stuff on, 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 on some of these things. Yeah. So I think it's all varies a lot. And the way you should go about it is try to see what's available, try different stuff, see, okay, maybe I like this book, I don't like this book. Yeah. Is this working for me? And move on to the next one. There's so many books available now yeah. in the market. Don't even have to go for books. You know, go to YouTube and search and you'll find the resources that you're after. I think that's a better way of going about you it. You have online yeah. courses available. So you have lots and lots of stuff available. Those, just don't restrict yourself to a book and be like, you know what, I'll study this, this book yeah. and I'll understand fixed income, I'll understand, you know, this and I understand yeah. FX and I understand all of it. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, so for fixed income, I do have a book back there. Well, fixed income securities. I don't know who it's by, but it's back there. <laughs> this is something called the Bond Book, which is also really good. I, I got a pile there, but um, I think I think it goes back to fundamentals. I think you do need to understand fundamentals well enough to to read specific high level topic books. Yeah, like Fair I enough. um, when I was working at the crypto hedge fund, I was reviewing certain books for a model because I was trying to implement a very complicated LSTM forecasting model, mm-hmm. and I, I decided to take it straight down to the basics i'm like okay i know how they work i know what they're what they're doing i know how, how to build them from scratch but i want to go out and read some books and look at some examples of how other people are applying it in the same field and then i'll build it up from there yeah. so i found a textbook from a guy who was i can't remember his name i think it's steven or something but he wrote a book called machine learning for finance uh-huh. oh i think i've heard of this and steven yeah. something yeah, yeah yeah and when i went to the lstm chapter it had a mistake in it right <laughs> and it was it was such an obvious mistake to anyone that's ever dealt with model development that right. it it pissed me off to the point where I, I literally emailed the guy. I had him on LinkedIn. Right. So I, I sent him I sent him like a LinkedIn email, I don't know what it's called. Right. Email. Yeah, email. Right. One of those ones. I sent him one of those to let him know. Yeah. He blocked me. <laughs> he blocked me. And uh and then I, I reached out to some other quants in the industry, like uh I'm not going to mention names, but this is some other quants. <laughs> and they all said the same thing. Mm. Every time they mentioned this issue, they, he blocked them. And it, it turned out the reason was because he doesn't actually have an ML background. He was just one of those angel investors in a startup that involved tech. And he wrote a book they... and outsourced the book. to Someone else actually wrote it. He oh, wow. So like, got a ghostwriter to write something for him? Yeah. Right. Okay. And uh, it was an <laughs> insanely popular book in, in quant. I think I've heard of it. And if you search for... Because what happens is these are all buzzwords, like machine learning for finance. It's such a buzzword. And that book will come up because it's right up there. But, and people will end up buying or getting, you know, a pirated copy somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So, so the issue he made with the LSTM model, and I, again, I still can't believe he did this. He, um, he normalizes data before he split it. So he did like a, a zero to one scaling, oh. I mean max scaling on his data right. before he scaled, before he split it, which meant that his he was using like max values in the future to scale oh, his data so that he was training yeah, his model yeah, yeah, yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when he showed his results, like the elbow plot was and like ninety nine percent accuracy. Exactly. And I'm like, what? 
what 99% accuracy in classifying time series in the future? Are you kidding me? That's impossible. But that seems really obvious because you're obviously you're reducing it out and yeah. Yeah, like, so in case anybody doesn't know, uh, when you're training a, a machine learning model or a time series model, sometimes you need to scale your data so really extreme data points are the same scale as really low ones, your model can learn better. And when you're training your model, you, you typically split it up into two sets, a training and a yeah. test set. And you, you can further split it into like training and validation. And validation and all that stuff. Yeah. And the, the thing you need to be aware of is when you split it, your test set or your validation set has to have no association, association with your training set. Yep. So that, like if you think about it, if you're training someone how to do something, you can't give them the answer. Uh, when you're training, yep, yep, it's yep, the same yep, thing yep, with yep. machine learning. You yep. can't give your model the answer when you're training it. And this textbook basically did this rookie mistake of like, like, um, uh, basically scaling the data before you split it. He, he he gave his model the answer before he trained it, and that yeah, it was it was a big mistake. So the, the idea is that you use the test data set that that you sort of uh, kept separately to determine the performance of the models. You train it on the training data. Maybe you validate it on yeah. the validate data, and the way it performs on the test data sort of determines how good the model is. But if you've already provided that data, and you've used that data to sort of train the, the, the model, when it's going to look at the test data, it's no longer looking at new data. It's not and so it's going to yeah. be able to predict really well, and so then the model figures are going to be completely off, as as uh, Post mentioned, 99% <laughs> yeah. accuracy or something insane like that. Yeah, yeah. Which is, yeah, it was, it was really surprising to me when I came across yeah. it. And I remember sitting like in my office but in the To be honest, it's, you don't even have to understand it that well to, to sort of look at it and be like 99%, something definitely Something's seems wrong. off. Yeah, you, know? you can't. So for anyone that's getting like, I don't know, 80% win rates on TikTok in your yeah. training strategy, something's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like in the industry, it's in never the, Yeah, that exactly. High. In the industry, I just want to sort of get it back to us where we are one of the biggest banks in the world. Yeah. And for us, our model performs at best maybe 52-55% of the times accurately, which means 45% of the times we are taking a, a, a wrong mid and we're going to end up making a loss. Yeah. So, you know, the models are that bad. And this is a lot of people working on it over years and improving it. But because the data is such and you're, it just doesn't work, you know? So what metrics are you looking at to, to measure those performances? Because uh, like, I think retail traders have a different definition of what a, a quote unquote win rate is. I'm not going to get into that. Maybe we can get into that here. But um, I guess the, how, do you, how, do you, how do you define that? So again, we have different metrics, but one of the metrics that I so I was sort of thinking about when I mentioned this was looking at how the model, model performed and how much money we made or lost on a single, single trade. Um, look independently from all the other rest of the trades. Yeah. And so looking at that and determining what's the the the, the model performance and all. Yeah. Saw that okay, this model is not that good, but it's good enough to, to make money and that's how it, it's been. We've been sort of trying to increase it yeah. systematically, but it's just it, it's a slow process. And yeah. any model given the way it performs because you know we did not price in Ukraine war crisis in in our model. We did yeah. not price in an inflation coming in at at, at this point or a recession coming in. Yeah. So it just these things happen, and sometimes people look at how the market and be like, you know what, we're gonna go long USD, even though the US market's not doing too well because it's just a safe haven. Yeah. And so people are gonna buy it, and and that's something that our model does not predict, and so you can't really do you know do do much on on these things. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think that's a good point because, like, a lot of the LDI funds and pension funds in the UK have the same problem. Like, they, I don't know if you knew about this, but they post guilt as collateral yep, yep. and lend it out 
to get like a leveraged loan in order to go out and buy equities or buy, buy some sort of leveraged product. But it's usually equities for a lot of uh, defined contribution funds here in the UK. And the issue happened was the volatility in the gilt market shot up. Yeah. All of a sudden, their collateral was wiped out. They had to post more. Water, yep, so yep. they go out to the market. They sell their gilts because that's the most liquid part they have yeah. in the portfolio. Yeah. Drives the price down further. Now they're, they're yeah. getting and, margin yeah, again. Exactly. And so everything it's a goes out and it's a death loop. selling yeah. gilts. And, you know, again, comes down to the basic economic demand supply. And that was the quant's fault. Yeah. Like, <laughs> if you think about it, it's like yeah. the most basic thing you get learned in school is like the past is not... Like yeah, definable, yeah, right? Like yeah, you can't yeah. carry the past forward to the to the future. Just because yeah. interest rate volatility hasn't happened in the past, it doesn't mean that's gonna, yeah, yeah. And like I think I think that's part of the stress testing process that a lot of quants need to do. But it's like I think people are too lax about it because like when, when they build their model, they're getting like what thirty percent win rates or sorry thirty percent accuracy or 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 R R squared whatever metrics they're looking at. Yeah. F ones or whatever. But look at these metrics. Like oh, that's pretty low. Why don't we shock it by like, let's say two times the historical average of, of volatility? And you're like, historical average is insanely low. It's only been low because of 2008. Before that, it wasn't really that volatile. Why are we only doing it by this much? Why not do it like a crazy amount? And then people are like, oh, well, it's never going to be like that. And then yeah. it happens. Exactly. And, and, and that's the thing. I remember uh, reading, I don't know what was I reading or watching maybe something recently. And they were like, some of these things that happened in 2008 crisis, they were like, they just seem statistically unimaginable, you know? They, they based just, on the past. Yeah, based on the past. And they're yeah. like, you know, this outliers by 33% standard deviation, 33% standard deviation or something. It's like, that does not make sense at all. But yeah. these things happen. And it's just that people yeah. don't factor these things in because they always think it's not going to happen and most of the time it's going to be fine. The way this works is we need to think about the, the, the black swan scenarios. Which is kind of tricky, right? Which is tricky. No we, one knows you, what they yeah, are. Yeah. All you can do is go buy history and be like, well, let's make it 20 times worse than that <laughs> and see what happens. Um, but I think uh, one thing I wanted to touch on before we uh, end the call or the, the podcast is that a lot of retail traders who trade in, in the FX markets and they're making money, they often define their win rates the wrong way. And I think that typically has a misconception to a lot of people who don't know how it works in the industry to go off and buy their courses or whatever they're selling. And the way they define their win rates is usually the amount of times you make money versus the amount of times you traded or lost money or something like that. And, and the way I, from a quant perspective, I think that's wrong because the way you should define it is in, based on a model signal, how often did you make money the next day? How often did you trade? That's a win rate. It's, you, you need to think about it in terms of false positives and false negatives, Fair enough. not in terms of total trades and total wins. Yeah, yep, yep. Because then you can pinpoint where your trade, your, where your profit and loss are coming from. Like anyone can say that I'm making a sixty percent win rate, eighty percent win rate, whatever it is, based off of an obscure trading mechanism and whatever yeah. it might be. But you need to pinpoint where those sources are, sources are coming from, and that's where the quant aspect is really useful in terms of false positives and false negatives. So I think that's why a lot of retail traders are often of the opinion that you can have like a ten percent win rate. And it's fine as long as your wins are bigger than your losses. That makes sense logically until you start digging into the details and you're like, a coin toss can have a 50% win rate and you can make more money than you lose. Does that make that a good strategy? Yeah. And then you start getting into the, the aspects of like, well, how do you measure random and what's not? Yeah. 
No, it, it, it is a complicated science. Honestly, it's not yeah. that easy. Even it, it's something that we struggle with a lot. Yeah. And we look at, you know, R squared and we look at a bunch of... A bunch of different things. A bunch of different things. But you, you just yeah. never know what's going to work. Especially it's so tough because a lot of our trades are internalized. It's yeah. very tough to really know whether this trade was really good or not. Yeah. And we have a bunch of analysis that's done. It's never accurate and yeah. it's never, you know, it's, as, as I said, it's never exact science. So. Yeah, attribution is insanely hard yeah. to do. Yeah. Even in fixed income, when you're calculating, so in case you don't know, what we're talking about here is the contribution to profit and loss from different trades is often very tricky to do in the industry. You have very complicated trades. And I think maybe 60% of the time is just a rough estimate. Yeah. And that's just because it's often very complicated to work out what your profit and loss actually is. Um, Part of the reason is to something called a mark-to-market phenomenon, where if you want to price something that you own, depending on what, how tricky that asset is or how complicated it is, it's really hard to get a price for it. That's a true price representation of it. Kind of, kind of a compli- way, complicated way of going. About it. I guess another way of thinking about it is if your if your test goes and you want to find out what the price of your potatoes are in the industry, but it turns out there's only three suppliers, they can. It's very hard to know if that's the true price. Yeah. And so when yeah. you're going mark to market, in other words, if you're trying to figure out what the true price is, figure out what to stick in your Tesco's balance sheet or your profit and loss statements, it gets very complicated if you only have a small number of suppliers or if it's a very complicated product. And yeah, so, so calculating attribution is very hard. <laughs> that is the point <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah. Um, we're out of questions, but if, if, you, if you have anything you want to talk about, anything you want to wrap up on? Uh, nothing. It was really nice uh, talking about these things. I don't get to talk a lot about, about what I do. Um, and you know have these soft conversations so it's really nice I hope the audience went away with something they learned something um, and if I sort of can wrap up everything that, that I've sort of spoken about or we've spoken about in, in the last an hour or, and, and, and so is that don't be afraid to make failures you know don't be afraid to, yeah. to, to go out there test stuff take stuff that, that's all part of the learning process go out there put yourself out there learn break yeah. move forward that, that, that's the yeah. bottom line that, that's what our industry stands for that's what the, the tech world stands for and that's, that's the future yeah. if you're not willing to take risk you're not learning you're not putting yourself out there and you're not going to make money if you put yeah. yourself out there you might have bad days and that's the reason why you need to sort of have protections and you need to have these stop losses and, and make sure that you're not you know selling your house and <laughs> yeah. putting yeah. everything on the line to, to price these things and, and, and make money yeah but you have to be sensible about it. But you know you should be afraid to to make losses, and that's how you're gonna make you know make make, make profits. Yeah, you, you learn from your failures. So yeah, have a little takeaway. Success can be lousy teachers, and yeah. failures can be teachers. Yeah, <laughs> well put. On that note, thank you for coming. Thank and, you so uh, much. Hope you guys enjoyed it, and I'll see you guys next time.